be seated. As we're working through Ephesians chapter 5, two weeks ago, we came to verse 21 where Paul exhorts the believers to be mutually submissive to one another. And then as we look at the remainder of chapter 5 and in chapter 6, we see Paul applying verse 21, be mutually submissive to one another to a number of social relationships, the first of which is the institution of marriage. Now, before we dive into Paul's teaching on marriage, in particular the roles of marriage that we find in verses 22 through 33 of Ephesians 5, I want to look at verse 31 where the apostle uh, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. And today, verse 31 serves as a springboard so that we can consider God's word on and will for marriage, just general principles about the institution of marriage. And I think we need to be reminded of God's word on and will for marriage in our day because man's word on and will for marriage is shouted loudly in the halls of power in our country even today. In 1996, the Defense of Marriage Act, known as DOMA, was signed into law. And section 3 of DOMA reads like this. The word marriage, for federal purposes, means only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife. And the word spouse refers only to a person of the opposite sex who is a husband or a wife. And then section 2 of DOMA states this, that states, that is, states like Arkansas, who refuse to recognize same-sex, may, states may refuse to recognize same-sex marriages granted under the laws of other states. So therefore, Arkansas may be against same-sex marriage, and under DOMA Section 2 can refuse to recognize same-sex marriages in other states that have same-sex marriage uh, laws. And so that was in 1996. That's a law that's consistent with God's word and will on marriage. And then in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court argued in United States versus Windsor, and our Supreme Court declared section 3 of DOMA that very clearly says that marriages between one man and one woman declared that to be unconstitutional. And then in 2014, the Sixth Circuit Court actually consolidated, and this may get a little complicated, but bear with me, and I should have some of our lawyers come up here and explain what the, the Sixth Circuit Court has done, but you've got me. So the, the Sixth Circuit Court consolidated the rulings of four state district courts who ruled
because of 14 same-sex families in these states that brought lawsuits against the laws in those four states that prohibited same-sex marriage, those district courts ruled in favor of those bringing the lawsuit, and they, they held that, that state bans on same-sex marriage violated the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment. And so the, the Sixth Circuit Court consolidated those, those um, four district courts' rulings. And the good news is that in 2014, the Sixth Circuit overruled those district courts, and, and they ruled that state-level bans on same-sex marriage were constitutional. So that was good for the biblical view of marriage. And then, of course, June 26, 2015, there was a case before the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court reversed the Sixth Circuit's court ruling. And our Supreme Court held in their ruling in 2015, which now is the law of the land, the 14th Amendment, according to the court, requires, requires a state to license a marriage between two people of the same sex and to recognize a marriage between two people of the same sex when their marriage was lawfully licensed and performed out of state. And that is where we are today. And brothers and sisters, the Supreme Court in 2015 is man's word and will on marriage. Marriage between two people of the same sex is legal in the United States of America. And individual states cannot prohibit it and they must recognize same-sex marriages in other states. Man's word and man's will on marriage. We need to be reminded <clears throat> of God's word and God's will on marriage. So if you would, take your Bibles, <clears throat> excuse me, and turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. <clears throat> Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, I love this, this at last, 
is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I hope you see Adam's excitement there. It's okay to be excited about women, especially if it's your wife. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, man's will and word on marriage is the law of our land, but God's word and will on marriage is the eternal truth on which we must be firmly rooted and stand. Let us pray. God, our Father, we we do thank you for your word. We thank you, O God, the Holy Spirit, that you have promised to come and impart your word to us, to change us, to conform us to your word, to mold us. And Lord, I pray today that as we consider these seven aspects of God's word on and will for marriage, that, that you might use them to encourage us. Some here are not married. And I pray that this might be helpful just to give the biblical perspective on marriage an institution that you may call them to at some point in the future. And many of us are marriage, Lord. I pray this would be helpful that we might seek you and especially seek to have Christ-centered marriages in our day. So work your will in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've got a seven-point sermon outline. Don't panic. We'll work through these systematically. I'm, I'm using the texture out of Genesis as, as our springboard today for these seven truths about marriage from the Scriptures. This is not Tim's word on marriage. This is not man's word on marriage. This is God's word on marriage. And so I've sought to be very, very much focused and rooted in the text before us today. And the first aspect of marriage is that God's word on and will for marriage is this, marriage is his. It is his institution. He has ordained it. Look at verses 18 through 22 of Genesis 2. God promised to provide a helper fit for Adam, a companion, a companion who was not a clone of Adam, but who perfectly matched Adam, was complementary to Adam, and completed Adam. Then in verses 19 through 20, Adam was given the wonderful privilege of of naming all the animals, a sign of authority in the Old Testament. As all those critters passed by Adam and he named them, he could not find a single one of them that fulfilled this promise that God had given to provide a helper that was fit for him. And then God fulfilled his promise as he created Eve, a companion that was fit for him. And one undeniable truth that we have here in this passage of Scripture that so clearly points to marriage being God's institution is the fact that that God brought 
her to the man, verse 22. You know, in our wedding ceremonies, I think it's very significant that, that the father of the bride give the bride away. And it, it, it pictures the, the ultimate father of the bride, God. And when I do premarital counseling with, with couples, I emphasize the fact that God has brought you together. It's a Christian marriage. God has brought you together. If it's a non-Christian marriage, hasn't God brought the couple together? Isn't God sovereign? God has brought you together. God is the ultimate father of the bride. This institution is his. He has ordained it. I'm from North Carolina. Renee is from Indiana. God brought us together in Knoxville, Tennessee, and we were married. You have similar stories, even if you're a childhood sweetheart, still, God brought you together. All of this shows that the institution of marriage is God's. And why is that important? Because if the institution of marriage is God's, God is the only one that has the right to define what marriage is and what marriage isn't. That's our second point. God's word and will on marriage is marriage is defined as the union of one man and one woman. Now, as we look at Genesis chapter 2, the passage before us today, if we were to take out our, our Hebrew Bibles, we would find very clear evidence that marriage is between one man and one woman. Because throughout verses 22 through 25, Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing down the very word of God given to him, uses masculine nouns, Adam, man, husband, and feminine nouns, Eve, wife, woman, her, to distinguish two genders. I mean, the actual Hebrew grammar language uh, points to this. For example, God took a rib from the man, male noun, and made the woman female noun, verse 22. And then as we look at chapter 1 and verse 27, where we read, God created humankind male, masculine noun, and female, feminine noun. Then he says in verse 28 of chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply. Not only does just the, the, the Hebrew text, the grammar point to there being two distinct genders, and one of each is brought together in marriage, one man, one woman. But the biology points to it because of this command in verse 28 as part of the cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply. It requires maleness and femaleness, distinctions biologically. Marriage is defined by God, one man, one woman, being bound together as husbands and wives, as a husband and as a wife. Here's the implication that I would, that I would have for us, just in light of these first two points, simply it's this, man's word and will on marriage from our Supreme Court has usurped God's authority and has redefined marriage and in so doing has violated the supreme law, the eternal law, the transcendent law of God. 
So let me restate this. I believe our Supreme Court has violated God's law. By grace, may we firmly stand on God's definition of marriage and not be swayed by our country's law, but stand firmly on the eternal law of God. There may come a day when what I have just said will cause my imprisonment. Do you? <laughs> I am, I'm, I'm not trying to be, um, what am I not trying to be? Uh, overly cautious. But there may be a day where I will be in prison as a minister of the gospel for saying what I just said. And may God give me the grace to say it and go to prison. May God give you the grace to say it, even if it means persecution. The third thing I want to talk about is marriage is covenantal. God's word and will on marriage is for a husband and wife to enter into an irrevocable covenant commitment to be husband and wife. It's so clear in the scriptures. Marriage is to be permanent. Look at verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. I like the old King James and cleave to his wife. In verse 24, what we find God teaching here is, is that husband and wife come together in an institution of marriage and they are to be, be inseparably linked. They, they are to cleave to one another. They are to adhere to one another. They are to literally be glued to one another with super glue from heaven that never gives way. Marriage is an irrevocable covenant commitment, and the couple, they're brought together, and they are glued together as long as they both shall live. Marital love must never, then, be rooted on feelings. Feelings and emotions wax and wane, uh, don't they? And why are you leaving your spouse? Asked the pastor. Well, pastor... I just no longer feel in love with my wife. How many times has that been the answer to the question? We may fall out of like with our spouse, but if our love is based on an irrevocable covenant commitment, we may never fall out of love because the where that love, where, where that marriage is rooted is something that is solid rock. It's a covenant commitment, not waxing and waning human uh, feelings. We are to root our marriage. We are to love based on this irrevocable covenant commitment that's described in verse 24. I, husband, take you, wife, to be my wedded wife. And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband. For better, for worse, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, 
to love and to cherish, and if it's the wife, and to obey, as long as we both shall live. Those are the marriage vows that I prefer to use when I officiate at a wedding. And they get at the very heart of what verse 24 is teaching us about this this covenant commitment in marriage being irrevocable, that, uh, that we are married until death do us part, that it's permanent, and that transcendent feelings, failing health, even our spouse not fulfilling their role, whatever the physical state may be, is not reason to break that covenant commitment. There are no reasons to break that covenant commitment, but one that we'll get to in just a moment. But even with adultery, the thrust of Scripture, though adultery is a biblical grounds for divorce, but yet Scripture clearly points to there being repentance, forgiveness, and restoration, even in that marriage where the one flesh principle that we'll talk about later has been violated. Marriage is not a social contract that can be set aside at leisure, that can be broken at will. Marriage is an irrevocable covenant commitment. By grace, may we be glued in this irrevocable covenant commitment as husbands and wives. Fourthly, marriage is intimate exclusively so. Verse 24 points to sexual intimacy as it calls that couple to leave and cleave and become one flesh. And here we find the boundaries of God's gift of human sexuality is, is within the institution of marriage. And as we've been studying throughout Ephesians thus far, especially the first part of Ephesians chapter 5, that, that human sexuality, this thing that God created and it, it was good, has been perverted and distorted greatly. But yet God's word on marriage is that human sexuality is good for those who are in the estate of marriage. And in fact, in marriage, the perversion of this gift because of the fall has been pushed back. It's been restored because husband and wife are able to be physically naked before one another without shame, but also that points to being spiritually and emotionally just exposed and there be no shame. Do you see how coming together in the institution of marriage pushes back the effect of the fall in perverting and distorting the gift of human sexuality? Marital eros in the Greek erotic love builds the marriage and this, this gift of human sexuality is so important. This, this one flesh principle is so important. God commands that you shall not commit adultery. God says, forsake all others and be exclusively intimate with your spouse. That's God's word on marriage. And may God give us the grace as married people to have this perspective 
and also that we would have his protection on us to be faithful to that which he has called us to in marriage. Sexual intimacy is for husband and wife exclusively. Fifthly, marriage is companionship. We, we see this most poignantly in verse 23. And even as I read the scripture, I made reference to this because <laughs> it really is to me uh, so, so, so telling of, of Adam as, as God has promised his helper that is fit for him. And he's seen these scores of the animal kingdom come before him and he's named them and, he, and he's going, Where, where's my, they've all got companions, <laughs> you know. You know, they've got a mate. It's kind of like being on the ark, you know, two of, of each gender, they're, they're on the ark. I wish you hadn't gotten mosquitoes into a lot of them, but nonetheless. Uh, and then, then God provides Eve, and Adam says, at last. Don't you see the, just the thrill, the excitement, the relief that Adam experiences here? He has a companion that matches him, that complements him, that completes him. Now he has a, a best friend. He has a co-regent to assist him in fulfilling the cultural mandate. At last, his loneliness has been alleviated. And the Greek word phileo refers to that love between friends. And, and now Adam and Eve are able to do life together as best friends there in the garden, truly best friends for a lifetime. And, and I think in our marriages today, probably one of the things that is, is the greatest struggle perhaps is this companionship. We so easily forget about our loneliness and God rectifying our loneliness and giving us our spouse. We so easily forget that God has brought us together as husbands and wives really to be best friends because the pressures of the day, the pressures of the family, the work, all that stuff comes in, creeps in, and we can very easily lose sight of the fact that my wife, my husband is my friend. And, and I think what's telling about this, <laughs> my wife Renee, is uh, we're, we're in the stage of, of uh, being empty nesters. We've, we've been there for a year or two. Uh, actually, longer than that. We're empty nesters. What more can I say? Uh, I really like it. Don't tell my children. Um, but think about this. How many times when a husband and wife become empty nesters, do they wind up in divorce? It's very common in society. All of that emphasis on the, on the little ones, and now all of a sudden they're gone. Who is this person that is cohabitating with me? And I think that shows that that couple, they have not been wise in building a friendship that can survive <laughs> becoming empty nesters. I think being friends is one aspect of marriage that can easily be set aside and not even focus on. I tend to think it's one of the most important aspects that God gives us. I mean, think about being married 
being best friends for a lifetime, being able to do life together as truly best friends. By grace, may the friendships of spouses represented here in our church deepen and deepen. And then sixthly, this I think I'm on six, marriage is cultural. And what I mean by that is that marriage is for all culture. You know, our, our, our passage uh, today is given the context of, of God giving Adam the cultural mandate to till and to care, and to protect, to fill and multiply the earth. And, and marriage is, is, is part of that. I mean, a, a, a Christian marriage done by a minister of the gospel in the context of a worship service, I think is the best expression of marriage, the culture of the church or the culture of Christianity. But having said that, it's perfectly consistent with God's word because marriage was given in the context of the cultural mandate to bless all cultures, even cultures that, that worship other gods, even cultures that, that worship no, God, it is proper and right for governments to issue marriage licenses. It is proper and right for civil magistrates to perform marriages. It is proper and right for human governments to regulate marriage. For instance, like DOMA in 1996, it's quite against God's law for governments to do what the Supreme Court did in 2015, however. And so my, my point here is that the institution of marriage is to bless culture. And where marriages are strong, even non-Christian marriages, where there's strong culture benefits from that. And where marriages are not strong, where divorce comes in, we see culture being harmed by that. And for Christian marriages, the blessing is so much more the, the, the blessing of growing together as husband and wife in Christ, as, as best friends over a lifetime, the, the, the blessing of, of raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the blessing of together engaging ministry to expand the kingdom of our Lord, the, the blessing of, of growing together in the truest sense of love, and the truest sense of love is love that is a product of Christ being in the husband, in the wife's heart. Think of the blessings that all culture experiences with healthy marriages. Even more, think of the blessing of Christian marriage the blessing to the church, the blessing to culture, the blessing of husband and wife, the blessing to families. God gave us marriage for blessing. And then seventh and lastly, marriage is imperfect. And when I say marriage is imperfect, I do not mean the institution of marriage is imperfect. The institution of marriage is perfect because the one who ordained it is perfect, God. What I mean by marriage is imperfect is that marriages are imperfect because marriages are composed of an imperfect husband and an imperfect wife in an irrevocable covenant commitment. And if you're confused about what it means to be an imperfect husband, just come see me. I'm an expert in being an imperfect husband. 
right, Renee? <laughs> and if you want to know what a perfect wife is like, then go see Renee. She'll, she'll tell you. Yeah, I, I, I kind of think it in, in counseling. Pastor sitting there, a couple comes in. Yeah, this problem in our marriage is him. So it's, it's always him. Why is that? And the pastor says, "No, the problem in your marriage is you. <laughs> you all, both of you, right? It takes two to tango. It takes two to mess up a marriage. Rarely is it just one individual's fault." Really, I, I find that to be very aware. So um, here, here's the deal. Im- imperfect husband, imperfect wife, and this irrevocable covenant uh, commitment. What, what that means, in case you've not figured this out yet, <laughs> is that there will be conflict in, in marriage. It's, it is inevitable. And, and why do I say that? Because we, <laughs> because we have an example of this in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, with, with, the, with the first married couple... There was conflict. I want to just, just briefly, quickly w- walk you through this, this conflict with the first married couple. In verse 24, Adam and Eve brought together at last, Adam says. They were so excited, and they're brought together, and they're naked, and we're not ashamed, right? All is good. Yay, Adam and Eve. Fast forward. And you really don't have to hold the fast button down too long. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Adam and Eve became sinners. Primarily because Adam broke the covenant, even though Eve surely helped. And what did they realize? They were naked, they had shame, they experienced shame. Because they were sinners. In verses 8 through 11, God's coming, strolling through the garden. I don't think when God comes, he ever strolls, does he? <laughs> he came in power, and Adam and Eve hid. Why did they hide from God? They didn't hide from God in Genesis chapter 2. They were quite happy to be before God, naked as jaybirds. Why do they hide from God in Genesis chapter 3? It's because of their sin. They had shame. Marriage is broken. They were broken. In verse 11, it's really an accusation of Adam. God asking the question, did you eat the forbidden fruit? Well, of course, God knew they ate the forbidden fruit. And God, in, in verse 11, basically accuses Adam of eating the forbidden fruit. And then in verse 12, <laughs> don't you love it? Adam blames Eve. It's the woman's fault. And he does more than that. He said, it's Eve's fault that I ate the forbidden fruit. And by the way, God, it's your fault because you gave me Eve. Remember, you brought her to me. I'm innocent. This is the ultimate blame shift of all time. None of us can compete with Adam here in, in blame shifting, by the way. So just rest assured, your blame shifting is nothing compared to what Adam did. But where do we get our blame shifting? From Adam, he's the expert in blame shifting, right? Adam is cursed, verses 17 through 19. God gave him the cultural mandate. Now he's going to labor, have difficulty, struggle 
as he tries to, to fulfill his role as the regent, as he tries to fulfill his role as husband, he is going to be in difficulty. Eve is cursed. Verse 16, she will be ruled by her husband. That does not sound pleasant, does it, ladies? But there's something else here. Because I think what verse 16 says is that though Eve will be ruled by her husband, she will try in every way to usurp her husband's authority. What, 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 do, you, what do you see here in Genesis chapter 3? Beautiful picture. Paradigm marriage in chapter 2. A marriage in crisis conflict, a marriage in great, great difficulty, a marriage on the verge of collapse in Genesis chapter 3. That's what sin does, dear friends, to a perfect institution, marriage. But thankfully, the story doesn't end here. The story doesn't end on this sour, difficult, hopeless note. It actually ends with a great deal of hope. Even in Genesis chapter 3, there's hope. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. We, we need to be very thankful for verse 24. Because here, remember those animals that, that, that Adam named? You know, they were... Parading by him, you know, that's a giraffe, that's a lion, that's a turkey. God took one of those animals and he killed it. He sacrificed it. And he skint it. And he took that hide of that freshly sacrificed animal. And what did he do? Remember Adam and Eve tried to cover up their shame with the fig leaves? Didn't work, did it? With just one sacrifice, one sacrifice, God did what Adam and Eve couldn't do with a whole tree full of fig leaves. He covered their shame. And now they were able to be before one another covered by the provision of God and live as husband and wife. Still imperfect. But there's hope. Why? Because God acted. Because God covered. Because God provided a covering. God dealt with their shame. And what does this point to? It points to Jesus. It points to what every redeemed sinner experiences. The covering of their shame by the atoning work of Christ. His perfect righteousness and his pardoning blood. Where we are able to live before God, not hide, but stand before God in Christ. Where we are able to be married, not hiding, but to be married coming together, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the reason I wanted to go in this direction for this sermon is to anticipate what we'll be doing when we look at the rest of Ephesians 5, verses 
22 through 33 as we look at the roles in marriage. Because the only way that we can be mutually submissive to one another, wives as you submit to your husband, husbands as you love your wife as a church, as, is going back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24 and remembering the only possible way that we can do that is to be spirit-filled because we've been covered by the provision of God in Christ Jesus. The only hope, ladies, wives, that you have in respecting your husband's authority is to be clothed in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope you have to be mutually submissive. The only hope you have, husband, to love your wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church is to be clothed in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It's the only hope you have to lay down your life for your wife. By grace and through faith, marriage is between two imperfect people who come together in this irrevocable covenant commitment covered by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Marriage means, the bottom line is this, God's word on and will for marriage is that husbands and wives recognize their need for Jesus daily and embrace Jesus daily. That is the only hope we have. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you, that is real true hope. For the power of Jesus Christ the covering of Jesus Christ is what enables two imperfect people to mutually submit to one another as husband and wife and glorify God. May our understanding of marriage be firmly rooted in God's word on and will for marriage. It's his. He defines it. It's an irrevocable covenant commitment. It's exclusively intimate. It's a blessing for all culture, and it's a union of two imperfect people who desperately need Christ every day, and Christ is available every single minute of every single day through faith. You can be empowered to be a wife. You can be empowered to be a husband through the powerful grace of Jesus Christ received through faith. That is the glorious hope. That is the glorious word and will for marriage that God has for us today. What was the key to your marriage? Asked the young wife. And this old widow who had been married many, many years said, Dear, there was a lot of repenting and forgiving. At the end of the day, that's really God's word on and will for marriage. Married folk need Jesus. You know what? I, this whole mess in our country with regards to marriage is really something, isn't it? <laughs> I just, when I was studying all this Supreme Court stuff and the history of Noma and all that, I just about got sick. I thought, how could our, how could our country come to this? 
I, I really do believe, I mean, God, God judges countries, doesn't he? This country will be judged one day. And then, then I think of the statistics about marriage, even Christian marriages that break up in, in divorce. I mean, it's just a mess. But I want to end with this. What our, what, what our country needs is not better marriage laws. What our country needs is Jesus. What our marriages need is, is not more, okay, I'll try harder. What our marriages need is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to work in the marriages here at Covenant, that you would bless, that you would give us Jesus, that we might stand firm on your word and, and will regarding marriage and not sway one inch. Give us Jesus, Lord, as a country that, that we might see the folly of our way. Give us Jesus as married couples here in this church that we might seek him, repent, forgive, walk in obedience. Rest upon Jesus as the power for mutually submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Bless our marriages, we pray. Bless those who may be anticipating marriage. Bless those who are struggling in marriage. And Father, those who have suffered broken marriages, Father, pour out your blessing. And Oh Lord, I just think of how sufficient the covering of Jesus is to heal every wound, even the wound of divorce. How sufficient the covering of Jesus is to heal every conflict within marriage. How sufficient the covering of Jesus is to bring healing and wholeness to us as redeemed sinners. Cover us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.